Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I just want to ask you a question. Think through in your own mind, your own heart, how you would answer this question. How do you feel about evangelism? How do you feel about evangelism? I'm not asking how do you evangelize. I'm not asking what evangelism is. I'm asking how do you feel about it? What is it that you feel about it? When you're speaking of Jesus, when you're telling people of the gospel, what is it that you are feeling as you are doing that? I think that when I have observed people sharing the gospel, they typically fall into one of four bad camps. Camp number one, we could call the overly flippant, right? It's my job to share the gospel. I'm a Christian. Here's the gospel. Boom, done. For some, it's the category of being overly mechanical, right? There's a formula. I have to do the formula. As you ask a question, don't interject. I need to get through my formula. Third category would be just bombastic, right? This is the category like, don't talk, let me do all the talking, and I just yell at you, and my yelling in your face will make you love Jesus somehow. And then for some, it's a, it's a soft approach. We could call it, a fourth category, a squishy approach to the gospel. There's a softness to it, where you don't, you don't really want to talk about judgment, about wrath, about hell, about uh, a penalty for sin, so you just kind of are squishy in the way you go about sharing the gospel. I, I believe... Revelation chapter 10 will teach us how we are to properly feel about the gospel. How we are to properly communicate the gospel. But before we even attempt to speak, what should we feel about the message that is on our lips? I think Revelation 10 will answer that question for us. So let's read this chapter together and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Revelation chapter 10 verse 1, John writes, I saw... Another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Do not write them. Then the angel whom I was, saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But... In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go, take the book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book, 
out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was as sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Father, I pray that over the course of our time together in your word this morning, you would work a miracle in our hearts to feel the way that you feel about evangelism. Not just to know the truth about it, not just to know the truth of the gospel, but to feel rightly what it is that we should feel as we share your word. Father, I pray that you would grant us grace and the sweet gift of illumination as we pray every Lord's Day. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help to see because with our fleshly eyes we will see but not see. We don't want to be blind to your truth. So teach us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 10 is an interlude. We just spent two weeks looking at chapter 9, which had to do with demonic activity. We had demon locusts and demon horses. And now we move to chapter 10, which just kind of slows down. It calms down. It's an interlude. Chapter 10 is an interlude the same way that chapter 7 was an interlude. If you guys remember, in chapter 7, right before the seventh seal was about to be opened, there was a break. There was a pause. Right between seal 6 and seal 7, there was a break. So, too, between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7, there's a break. It's almost as if the events have been so catastrophic that, that we need a little bit of a breather before we continue. In fact, there are so many different little interludes throughout the book of Revelation that if they were all gone, Revelation would be about half the size of what it is. So God gives us these interludes, and as one pastor says, in each case, the interlude that comes before the final judgment, whether the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, or the seventh bowl, it's intended to encourage and comfort God's people in the midst of the fury of God's judgment. It's a gasp for breath in which God can comfort his people who, having gone through the first six of each of these, are feeling the heat and the fury of judgment. These interludes are to remind God's people that God is sovereign, his people have been remembered, and he will ultimately be victorious. So this interlude is here to give us comfort. So my question is, as we dive into this for our outline this morning, how are we to see comfort? And then we'll conclude by asking, how are we to feel about evangelism? So three different ways in which John is given comfort, which is going to lead us to understand how we're to feel about evangelism. So comfort number one, the angel John sees. This is verses one through two. The angel John sees. There's almost a recommissioning of sorts here where an angel is going to speak to John and tell him to do something uh, again. There's so much devastation, so much judgment that's being poured out that maybe there's a, a pause to recommission, continue the work that you have been doing, John. He says, I saw another strong angel. And the description of the strong angel, there are many people because of the description, uh, they think that this is Jesus. For the sake of time, let me just tell you, I don't think that it's Jesus. Number one, because John uses a word when he says, I saw another. There's two, two Greek words for another that you can use. One Greek word would say another of the same kind, and one Greek word would say another but of a different kind. 
If we're talking about Jesus here, it would be another of a different kind. He's an angel, but another of a different kind because he's not an angel like an angel is an angel. But here, another of the same kind. It's another strong angel, just like if you turn back to chapter 5, verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. So this is another angel of the same kind. So it's distinct from this angel in chapter 5, verse 2, but it's the same kind of an angel. So it's not Jesus because it's another of the same kind, not another of a different kind. Also, Jesus is never called an angel in the book of Revelation, so it would be weird for John to say this, this is Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus would never make the oath that this angel is making in verse 6, which we'll get to when we uh, drop down to verse 6. And then fourthly, if this is Jesus, he's coming down out of heaven, descending with a cloud. So it's another coming of Christ, which we'd have a problem with that, right? There's like first coming, second coming, third coming, fourth coming, fifth coming, like there's another separate uh, coming of Christ. So I don't think that this is Jesus. I think this is very clearly just an angel, but he's a strong angel. Look at the descriptions that surround this angel. He's coming down out of heaven, so he has the authority of heaven. He's clothed with the cloud. That's not like a cute little puffy cloud. This is a massive thunderstorm kind of a cloud. Dark, black. It's about to produce thunder and lightning. Clouds in the Bible, uh, about half of the times that it's used, the word cloud is used in the New Testament, it's used to speak of imminent judgment coming. So this is a picture of judgment coming with this angel. There's a rainbow on his head. It's the Greek word iris. It's that circle that's around his head. And we've seen that rainbow earlier in chapter 4 and 5 in the throne room of heaven. The, the rainbow is a representation of God fulfilling his promises, God keeping his promises, being faithful to keep his word, and also of mercy. That even as judgment is coming, there's mercy inside of the judgment. And we've seen that throughout this book. His face is like the sun, uh, just radiating the glory of Jesus. Uh, imagine what Jesus' face must look like. And his feet are like pillars of fire. Uh, we saw that earlier with the description of Christ way back in chapter 1. Burnished bronze, pillars of fire, it's holiness. That wherever his feet touch, there's judgment that's coming and holiness that's going to grow into the area to purify that area. He has a little book, verse 2, in his hand. This little book, it's a little scroll, and this little scroll is different from the scroll that we saw Jesus opening with the seven seals on it, but it contains probably the same information. It's smaller. Maybe it doesn't contain the seal judgments because they've already happened. Maybe it doesn't even contain the first six trumpet judgment because they've already happened, but it contains the ending of human history. It contains the prophecy and the record with which God will bring judgment into the world, do away with sin, do away with evil, and bring uh, everlasting righteousness. So he has this little book. It's open because it's time for these judgments to happen. It's time for Jesus to rule and to reign. And that's the whole theme of this chapter because the angel is going to say, no more delay. No more delay. It's time for this to happen now. And he, verse 2, he places his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. He places his right foot on the sea and left on the land. This isn't, don't think of like on the shore where there's a little bit of water coming up on the shore. His right foot's in water and his left foot is on dry, you know, sand. That's not what's happening here. This angel is massive. 
Right? His leg is all the way in the middle of the Atlantic, and his other leg is all the way, you know, s- sitting clearly in Kansas, right? Like, this is, this is a massive angel. And the reason why John sees the angel this way with his legs on both the land and the sea is God has all control over both the land and the sea. Judgment is coming for both the land and the sea. God owns it all. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has an orbit, as, we all, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God owns it all. God owns it all. There are no maverick molecules. There is no square inch in the entire universe over which God cannot say and does not say, this is mine. So there's great comfort from this angel. There's comfort from the angel that John sees because John sees God owns this, judgment's coming, purity's coming, the cloud is coming of judgment, God will fulfill his promises. There is great encouragement in seeing this angel. Number two, there's encouragement in the promise that John hears. There's encouragement in the promise that John hears. This is verses three through seven. The angel cries out with a loud voice, like when a lion roars. So it's not an unintelligible, it sounds like it could be, just this angel just yelling. He's speaking, but he's speaking in such a way that it, it comes across like a lion roaring. W- what's the point of that? Uh, when a lion roars, it produces fear and intimidation. And that's what's happening. When this angel speaks, there's fear and intimidation because he's speaking words of judgment. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. We saw earlier in Revelation that those seven peals of thunder were the Father speaking. We've seen that in John chapter 12 as we went through the Passion Week when the Father spoke. Remember when Jesus said uh, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, uh, what, what should I say? This is the hour for which I've come. Should I say, save me from this hour? No, Father, glorify me. Glorify yourself as you glorify me in this hour. And the Father says, I have both glorified you and will glorify my name through you. He speaks. And as he speaks, everybody around, the Bible says in John 12, everybody around just hears thunder. They they don't hear any words, they just hear thunder. I think this is the Father speaking, uttering the voice of saying judgment is on its way. The end is here. John hears the voice, and verse 4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write because he was commanded early on to write, so he takes up his pen, he starts writing, and then he hears, don't write. Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and don't write them. Don't write them. Why? Why is John not allowed to write what God the Father had spoken? Well, we don't know. We don't know. I don't know what he was going to write. I don't know why God told him not to write. And as one commentator says, speculation is pointless (laughs) because we don't know. But here's what this does teach us. While God has revealed much, there are secrets which God has not seen fit to reveal to us. There are certain things that we just won't know. And I know that that violates our sense of needing to know. 
but we don't know, and that's okay. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Some people have a problem with this because they, they hear the words of Jesus, don't make an oath, don't swear an oath. That's not what Jesus is saying because we shouldn't be doing that because we're fallen creatures and we'll go back on the promises we're making. This isn't a fallen creature. This is a holy angel and he's saying by the power of God and who he is, this is going to happen and he can't speak untrue statements. By him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea in it. He owns it all. Here's the message. There will be delay no longer. The main point of the oath is we've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting, and now no more waiting. But, verse 7, and that's the strongest adversative that you can have in the Greek. No more delay, but this is going to happen. The seventh angel is going to sound, and the mystery of God will be finished. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. The same emphasis is used here. There has been delay but now there will no longer be any delay. God is finishing the mystery, verse 7 says. What's the mystery? Mystery is a Greek word that means something that was concealed, that wasn't fully understood, but now has been revealed. And this is speaking of the end times. This is speaking of the kingdom, right? Totally makes sense because remember when Jesus showed up and the Jews saw him and they said, he's Messiah, he's going to bring the kingdom now. We want the kingdom now. Messiah is going to bring the kingdom, and we want it now. And he said, that's not why I came. I didn't come to bring the physical kingdom. If you would have received me, I would have given it to you, but you didn't receive me, and so I'm not giving you the kingdom. Even after he dies and he's raised from the dead, Acts chapter 1, the disciples say, is it now that you're going to give us the kingdom? So the kingdom had been concealed. The idea of how all these things will unfold had been concealed. It's going to be revealed to us in Revelation chapter 20. This is the way that the kingdom is going to be brought about. And so the mystery of God, of how he's going to come and establish his kingdom on earth to rule and to reign here, is finally going to be brought to fruition. And he's doing it, very interestingly, in verse 7, as he preached. That word preached is the word euangelion, evangelize. God evangelized through his prophets, you and me. God gave us the gospel. And he's bringing about the culmination of all of human history. In accordance with the mystery that he had concealed but now is revealing, he is saying the end of human history is here and I'm bringing about divine judgment and divine restoration. There is no more delay. But, as one pastor says, right now we live in that delay. Judgment is held back. But somewhere, somewhere beyond the starry sky, there stands a herald angel with a final trumpet in his hand. Somewhere behind the scenes that we can see, he is waiting to hear the decree of the Lord God Almighty. There is a day, there is an hour, there is a moment, there is an appointed time when that angel shall sound and the world will become Christ's. The mystery of our God will be over. 
And God will say to Satan, this is your destruction. God will say to evil, this is your last dominion. And God will say to demons, this is your last liberty. And God will say to godless men, this is your last hope. And God will say to believers, this is your last suffering. There will be delay no longer. That brings great encouragement and comfort to John. He sees an angel, that brings him comfort. He sees and hears what the angel is saying, which brings him great comfort. And finally, number three, the third aspect of what brings John comfort is the commission that John receives. The commission that John receives. This is verses eight through the end of the chapter in verse 11. The commission John receives Verse 8, the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So he does that. He goes to the angel and he tells him, hey, I was told to come get this book. So he gets the book. And the angel says, take it and eat it. Now, some people try to uh, make this an analogy for just receiving the word and digesting it and meditating upon it. Uh, that is used elsewhere in the Bible. I don't think that there, there's a need for us to see this as anything other than literal, that he's actually eating this book. Uh, reason being, Ezekiel did the exact same thing. Ezekiel was told to take a scroll and eat the scroll. Uh, so yes, it's a picture of digesting it, but I think it's a literal scroll that he's eating. Jeremiah did the same thing. I found your words and I ate them. The idea of receiving, consuming God's truth in order to then be able to speak it correctly. And so this angel says, eat this book, take the book and eat it. But notice what he says. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So your stomach's going to be bitter, your mouth is going to be sweet. Mouth comes before the stomach, right? Why does he put bitter first? I think this is very interesting. He knows, I want to tell John what he's not expecting. I want to get that out in the open right off the bat. You're going to eat this and it's going to be sweet, but you need to know before the sweetness, you need to know there's a shocking end to this commission. Verse 10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Why? What, what's the point of this commission? Why does the exact same message produce sweetness and sorrow? I think the reality is when we think about the gospel message and the message that John is proclaiming, there is coming a day when Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't get you excited, nothing in life will. Our king is coming back to rule and to reign, to establish a kingdom. We get to be his citizens, and we get to rule and reign with him in righteousness, with no sin, with no sorrow, with no death. Finally, the fight against sin that we wage every single day will be gone. We hate our sin. We don't want to live in it anymore, and one day, we won't have to. What a beautiful Beautiful message. That's the sweetness of the gospel. There is coming a day when we will forever be set apart, glorified in God's presence for all of eternity. But along with that message comes a bitter message. Because just as amazing as it will be for you and me who are believers to be in paradise for all eternity, 
there is coming a day, just as this angel says, there will be delay no longer. There's coming a day when non-believers will never again be able to make a choice to follow Christ. There's coming a day when there's no more opportunity to be saved. And guess what? It's the same day. The day that we finally get to be freed from sin and put into the presence of God forever in our eternal home, that day, the last day of all of human history, is the exact same day in which non-believers will have no more hope whatsoever, no more chance whatsoever to get saved, no more ever again to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, no more chance. So, of course, that day is going to be both amazingly sweet and unbearably bitter. That's why John, as he eats this message, as he receives this message, he says it's both sweet and it's bitter. And then the angel says, you're going to tell everybody. This message is for everyone. You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, many nations, many tongues, and many kings. There's nobody who is not going to be affected by this message. So, the angel that John sees is comforting. The message that John hears is comforting. And the commission that he receives is comforting. But there's a, a bitter aftertaste. So, what are we to take from this chapter? And how does this chapter affect the way we should feel about evangelism? Well, let's start off with uh, just in, in conclusion, six lessons, we'll make them brief, but six lessons that we learn from this chapter. Lesson number one, God is sovereign. Remember that angel standing on the sea and on the land, he owns it all. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all. Therefore, nothing that he does or nothing that happens in this earth is outside of his control and power. He's king. He's sovereign. Number two, God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. This is another lesson learned from this chapter because not only do we see the rainbow around the angel's head, a picture of the fulfillment of promise, but number two, we have this mystery of the coming about of the kingdom that was concealed but now is being revealed and the kingdom will be here. He promised that kingdom so many thousands of years ago to Israel and it's going to happen. So number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God will fulfill his promises. Right there. We could stop right there and see implications for our own lives. What quote-unquote, mysteries are there in your own life. I, I'm not using the word biblically here, but what things have been hidden in your life that you have not seen the outworking of those things, and you're wondering, how is God going to use this? How is God going to work in this area? If you believe God is sovereign, and you believe he fulfills his promises, then you have enough to trust him. You have enough to say, hey, even if I don't know, even if it is concealed, I'm okay, I can trust you. God is sovereign. God will fulfill his promises. Lesson number three that's very clear in this chapter is warnings expire. Warnings expire. This chapter teaches us of the seriousness of the warnings of repentance. You can flee to Christ now. You might not be able to tomorrow. There is a day coming when we no longer have the opportunity to repent. Number four, a fourth lesson, is that wrath is coming. Wrath is coming we have incredibly sweet news in the gospel, but we also have awful news. Really, the goodness of the good news is only seen in the backdrop of the badness of the bad news. 
If you make the bad news of sin, punishment, hell, and wrath very, very small, then you minimize the beauty and the glory of the good news. If I can say it this way, if you are going to be believable in your evangelism, then you have to believe that wrath is coming. If you don't really believe it, people will know that you're just overly mechanical. You're just overly formulaic. People will know. They'll feel like you're just treating them as a project instead of a genuine, you love them, you care for them, and you know wrath is coming and you desire for them to repent. That's why I just, I plead with all of us to preach the whole Bible. Preach the whole Bible. In small group, go through the whole Bible. In your own devotions, go through the whole Bible. In your family devotions with your kids, go through the whole Bible. See the beauty of the gospel against the backdrop of the wrath that is coming. Along with that, number five, and I think that this is incredibly clear from this section, there's a bitterness to the salvation that's coming because it doesn't include everyone. And so number five, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We need to know that. We need to remember that. Or else all of it would be sweet. Or else all of it would be sweet. If God delights in the death of the wicked, then it's all sweet. Now, there is a way that God is glorified in the death of the wicked, yes. But turn to uh, Ezekiel. Just really quickly. Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? So do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Do I want them to die in their sins and spend forever separated from me in hell? Verse 32 answers it. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want them to come in repentance to me. I'm pleading with them. I'm wooing them. I'm asking them. But if they choose to reject and they say, no, I will not come, then they will bear the penalty of their sins. God's desire is for people to repent. Can I just ask, is that your desire? When you're sharing the gospel, is your desire in sharing the gospel for people to repent and be satisfied in Jesus Christ? Or is it to check off the box that I evangelize today? Why do we study? Can I ask our, our hearts this question? Why do we study this book? Why do we study the gospel? Why are we involved in discipleship programs? Why do we have small groups? Why do we grow information about this book? If it's just to learn and not to love, I think we have a serious problem. If we're just growing in this book knowledge and learning information, which people love. They just love to accumulate information. But if all we're doing is growing information and not transformation in affections for other people and loving them the way that God loves us, then it's really profiting us nothing. Honestly, evaluate the time that you spend acquiring information from the Bible compared to the amount of time you spend asking God to increase your love for those around you. I think that we struggle with this. I think this is a real struggle for people in our circles. A.W. Tozer calls these people textualists. He says this, a textualist is a person who assumes that because they affirm the Bible's veracity or truthfulness, they automatically possess the things of which the Bible speaks. So think about yourself. 
a textualist is somebody who says, I believe this book is true. And A.W. Tozer says, those people just go, because I believe it's true, it automatically, I possess everything that it tells me. I have a heart that loves Jesus. I have a heart that loves people. I automatically have those things. Too many people, though, live as though affirming a biblical truth is equivalent to having it in reality. I love the way one writer says it. Seminary can teach you how to memorize a menu, but that doesn't ensure that you'll ever taste the food. It's terrifying to think that hell may have no shortage of Bible teachers with good theology because they know this book, but they didn't live it out with affections for others and affections for the Lord. So, that's why we started with the question, how are we to feel about evangelism? We know what the truth is. How are we to feel about evangelism? And I think Revelation chapter 10 tells us exactly how we're to feel. One writer says it this way, perhaps the full impact of what John experienced is a reminder to all who proclaim God's wonderful word and speak of his coming judgment and wrath. We must speak it with a measure of sorrow and bitterness. And then he says this, a broken heart is a prerequisite to the proclamation of God's judgment and wrath. Do you speak the gospel message with a broken heart? Knowing that people that you are sharing with are currently as fast as they can running their race to hell. We cannot be mechanical about this. We cannot be formulaic about this. We need to have a, a bitterness in our stomach about the message that we proclaim, knowing there's judgment inside of it. And so I, I just want to ask you this morning, do you know the bad news? Do you know the reality that our sin deserves separation from God? Uh, we, we should be penalized, just like anything in life, right? There's a consequence for bad actions. There's a consequence for our immorality here in this life. You speed, you get a ticket, you do something wrong, something bad's going to happen as a penalty. And so if you do something wrong against the one who made you, an infinitely holy God, then your punishment will be infinite. Do you realize the peril that you are in at this very moment if you have not run to Christ? If you have not turned to him. I don't know if you are keeping track in your notes, but I've only given you five of the lessons that we've learned from this chapter. The last lesson, number six, is the most important. God is Savior. God is Savior. Yes, wrath is coming. Yes, warnings expire. But right now, here today, you have a Savior that's standing, waiting for you, to plead with him and to ask him just to say, I need salvation. I know that my sins condemn me to hell. I know I deserve punishment. I know I deserve a penalty. And I don't want that. I want you and you made a way for me to be saved. He's waiting for you to do that. He's wooing you. He's pleading for you to do that. Just even thinking about this little scroll that John eats, Jesus experienced the bitterness of that scroll so that all we have to experience is the sweetness. God saves. Brothers and sisters, how much time do you spend praising and worshiping Jesus for this reality? 
God saves. We were his enemies. We were destined to face his wrath. Jesus was tortured on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Does that truth still move you? Just think about it right now. Does that truth, the reality of the gospel still move you? I pray that if you, if you honestly assess, it doesn't really move me. You have to come see our sister be baptized. You have to hear of the beauty of the miracle of regeneration in the heart of one of God's kids. You have to. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God and adopted as his child. How can we go a day without praising God for that? So how are we to feel in our evangelism? Chapter 10 says, bittersweet. So my question to you is, can people tell that in your tone? Can they tell that there's a bittersweetness in the, in the message that you're giving, in your body language, in the time that you take, in your patience, in your hospitality, in your concern and care for their souls? Can they tell that you love them as you share with them? Before John continues to write Revelation, God says you need to stop and you need to remember my sovereignty and the sweetness of the gospel. But you also need to remember and taste the bitterness of judgment so that you don't write the rest of this book in a wrong tone, in a wrong way. And even the judgment that God's going to pour out on his enemies is a bitter thing. You know, I think one of my favorite hymns captures this so well. Here's another hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing that last stanza. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The cloud be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. And then what's the line? Even so, it is well. Honestly, that line has always bugged me. Even so, the trump resounds, the Lord descends, he's here on earth to rule and to reign. Even so, especially since, right? He's here, finally we're free. What's this guy thinking when he says, even so? It was not until I studied Revelation 10 that I realized, I, I wonder if that's what he was thinking even so, even, even because, even since the reality of the gospel has finally reached its culmination and there's no more chance. When Jesus is coming back, there's no more chance for those people to repent. Even so, it's well. Even so, it's well. I can rest in the sovereignty and the goodness of my God. It's especially well for our souls because he's coming back to take us home. But even in judgment, we can say, in the bitterness of that message, we can say, it's still well with my soul because God is sovereign and God is good. So let's stand together and sing that stanza and then I will pray and close our time this morning. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump 
Father, it is well with our souls because of the beauty of the gospel. Father, help us to internalize this message, to be transformed by this message. The reality of the beauty and the sweetness of being satisfied in you forever and the reality of the bitterness of those who choose to reject you forever. In this life, they will experience that rejection for all eternity and experience your judgment alone. Father, make us urgent in our evangelism. Make us correct in our tone, pleading with compassion and a compelling, winsome attitude as we speak the words of truth. And may you, Jesus Christ, receive the reward of your sufferings. You are worthy. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our benediction this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. In the unity and the peace that the gospel brings, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, amen. Let's go ahead and go right now down to the senior patio. Uh, Katie is going to get ready, and then we will be there in five minutes. So grab your stuff, go right down the, to the senior patio, and we will baptize our dear sister. <laughs>